And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Rechman, Persuasion's editorial assistant. Back in October, I wrote a story called The Simpleton Manifesto. It came out of a frustration of hearing increasingly simplistic slogans being substituted for actual policy proposals. From Trump's plan to build the wall to demands to defund the police, it felt like we were living in a world where people were increasingly uninterested in solving real-world problems with sensible solutions. Looking back through my old notes from university, I found a term first used by the sociologists Seymour Lipset and Earl Raab in their 1970 classic The Politics of Unreason. Simplism, as they called it, seemed to describe almost perfectly what we were seeing today. My article took this idea and tried to flesh out its implications. Using Trump's border wall as the definitive example of simplism policy, I came up with four strands which I thought illuminated how simplism worked and why it was so damaging. First was the fact that simplists assumed the solution to our problems was so obvious that debate was unnecessary. We saw this in Trump's references to the border wall's supposed common sense. Simplists refuse discussion because they believe, or want you to believe, that their positions are self-evident truths. Second was the consequent assumption that your opposition must be stupid or evil. If you can't accept the supposedly obvious policy, you must be doing it out of ignorance or malice. The arrogance of simplism doesn't allow you to conceive of legitimate differing opinions. Third, for the simplest, objecting means siding with the enemy. There can be no middle ground. When some Republicans voted to block Trump's emergency declaration to build the wall, they were slammed on Fox News as rhinos, Republicans in name only. Fourth, political norms do not matter to the simplest. Their proposals are so legislatively and practically unworkable, they require bypassing the rules. Again, we saw this with the border wall, which was built with gross executive overreach and by purloining money from the Pentagon. For the simplest, if the norms don't allow your solution, it's norms which must be changed. These four points seemed good enough reason alone for me to reject simplism. But there were two further results of it which particularly concerned me. Firstly, the policy it produced was predictably unworkable. The wall, for example, ignored the fact that 62% of undocumented migrants remain in the United States by overstaying their work visas rather than entering without inspection. Secondly, I feared simplism would feast on its own failures. It would produce a policy which failed to change things for the better and continue to feed polarization and an inability to compromise. Voters would understandably conclude the system wasn't working and continue to flood to extremists with promises to break the status quo. Then the whole cycle of simplest failure, only fueling more simplism, would continue. With Joe Biden set to take the over office, we've gotten rid of the simplest in chief. But unless Biden can show sensible, nuanced policy can still win the day, I fear simplism may be with us for a long while yet. Nathaniel Rachman's piece called The Simpleton Manifesto was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. For today's episode, I spoke to Rutger Bregman, or Rutger Brechman, I believe, in the Dutch, so I slaughtered that without a question. Rutger has written a number of bestsellers, including Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build the Ideal World, as well as Humankind, A Hopeful History, which came out this year. His work is really interesting because it pushes for a lot of left-wing ideas like universal basic income, but it's rooted in a view of humanity 
and in a view of a possibility of human progress that actually is quite unpopular on parts of the left at the moment. We had a pretty philosophical conversation about topics ranging from how we should think about the evidence regarding hunter-gatherers, how much that might actually inform our view of human nature today, whether we should believe in free will and what kind of implications that might have for everything from human relationships to the prison system. It's a really rich and wide-ranging conversation, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I have. Rutger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Asha. I hope I didn't uh, slaughter that too much. Um, uh, <laughs> that was great. So listen, I think there's an interesting divide on a lot of the left between a sort of more optimistic view of a world and a pessimistic view mm. of a world, right? I think there's a kind of leftism that's rooted in saying things are terrible today. They haven't really improved all that much. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's driven by this sort of anger at injustice. Now, you're angry about plenty of injustices, but I think you have a more optimistic view of a world, mm -hmm. one that's actually focused on progress and that roots a lot of your political positions in the possibility of more progress and the probability even of more progress. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what drives that optimism. So I like to make a distinction between optimism and hope. Hope is obviously about the possibility of change, and I think it impels you to act. Optimism sometimes can make you a little bit lazy. That's why I'm a fan of the Hans Roslings and the Steven Pinkers of the world. I think they have a lot of valuable lessons to teach us. But Sort of the optimistic part can sometimes feel a little bit complacent to me, where you get the impression, well, you know, things will turn out to be all right. We are richer, we are healthier, we're wealthier than ever. History is moving in the right direction and just enjoy the ride, don't worry, be happy. And if that's what optimism means, then I'm not an optimist. It's funny, I use a very similar line when people ask me about authoritarian populism, right? Are you an optimist about it? Are you a pessimist about it? And I say, look, I think that whether or not we're able to contain the rise of authoritarian populism depends on our actions. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I'm, I don't know whether I say hopeful, but I say something similar, right? But it, it's up to our actions of so a question of whether to be optimistic yeah. or pessimistic is sort of moot or besides the point. But there is real optimism in your latest book as well, right? It takes a very positive view of human nature and it does take a positive view of the progress we've made as well. Yes. So the reason I wanted to write this book, Humankind, is that there's been a real shift in social science. So many scientists from so many diverse disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, biologists, psychologists, sociologists, you name it, have been moving from a quite cynical view of human nature to a more hopeful view of who we are as a species. And a couple of years ago, I started to realize that so many of these brilliant specialists knew everything about their own field and that they often didn't realize what was going on in the field next to theirs. And I was in a position at a journalism platform called The Correspondent, where I didn't have to report on the news, but it was basically free to write, I don't know, one essay a month. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna try and zoom out and see if I can paint a bigger picture of what's going on here. And that's what I attempted to do in this book, to show that indeed something bigger is going on and that, well, we humans are clearly not angels, but there is uh, more and more scientific evidence that has come in that indeed gives us reason to be hopeful about who we are as a species. So what is that change in the sort of social science that's going on and how should that inform how we think about the world? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe one of the easiest examples is the sociology of disasters. Now, obviously, 2020 is a year of crisis, and if you watch the disaster movies or 
if you read a novel about how people respond to disasters or a Batman movie or something like that, then you might get the impression that civilization is only a thin veneer and that below that lies raw human nature and that people deep down are just selfish. This is what Franz de Waal, the great primatologist, calls veneer theory. And that theory comes back again and again in Western culture. And it's not just a theoretical idea, by the way, when you go back to March and April, you know, when we're really first dealing with this pandemic in the public mind, when most of the people woke up to how serious the threat it was, you know, gun sales spiked and there was sort of news reports about survivalists sort yeah, of going yeah, to yeah. the bunkers and yeah, all of that yeah, stuff, yeah. right? So it's sort of... You always see that. So there's a huge amount of attention to those kind of phenomena in news reports. The same happens after natural disasters. So you'll remember Katrina when the press was full of stories about looting and plundering, etc. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist at all, but what sociologists have pointed out now hundreds of times, actually we now have more than 700 case studies, which is that actually the vast majority behave in a really pro-social way. And that actually crises tend to increase social capital. Trust often increases between people and um, you get this basically an explosion of altruism and cooperation which is very much the opposite of what we're always being told so that's i think one important example that you see from sociology a big part of my book is actually about what has happened in evolutionary anthropology where now researchers have come to believe that the secret of our success as a species is not that we're so smart or not that we're so mean or powerful or whatever, but it's actually our capacity for friendliness and kindness. There's one evolutionary anthropologist called Brian Hare, who's you know, really one of the pioneers here. And he literally talks about survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation, which is very much the opposite of what I used to believe for a long time when I thought about evolutionary theory. Is this about friendliness or is it about cooperation, which are two slightly different things, right? You know, friendliness makes it sound like the people who are going to fare best in this evolutionary lens are those who are sort of, I, I was sitting um, at a socially distant outdoors Thanksgiving on a patio um, yesterday next to a sort of three-year-old puppy, you know, very, very sweet. And it like walks up to everybody and is friendly to everybody, yeah. right? So, so that's mm -hmm. a version of friendliness. I mean, another version that in my understanding is more rooted in the social science, but I haven't read as much of his recent work as you have, is more about in-group cooperation, right? So the striking fact that I believe Jonathan Haidt points out, and you know that's well evidence from literature, that you know, chimpanzees, who are very, very smart animals, are not capable of cooperating on carrying a log from point A to point B if it would help them get to a food source they're really motivated to get, right? That's just the basic ability to cooperate between two animals of the same species is really, really limited. Now, humans can absolutely do that when you think of us podcasting together and all of the technology that's necessary to sustain that in the background, when you think of the human orchestra, when you think of a society and the sort of large scale of cooperation. But it does also seem to be encoded in a preference of the in-group over the out-group, that we do always draw those lines between in-group and out-group, and that seems to put pretty stark boundaries on the extent of our friendliness. Well, what if both of these things can be true at the same time? So this exciting new theory in evolutionary anthropology is called self-domestication theory. And the idea is that if we humans have domesticated ourselves, 
obviously, I mean, we all know about sheep and cows and pigs and you name it, who are domesticated animals, which means that we've selected for tameness and friendliness. And biologists have long known that if you domesticate an animal, then you see a list of traits that starts to emerge. They call it domestication syndrome. So you see, you see things like thinner bones, smaller brains, and maybe most importantly is that domesticated animals on average, it just seems that they don't really grow up anymore. So they're much more playful, much more childish. We also know which genes are associated with domestication. And then, yeah, what's really interesting is that it seems to be the case that we've been domesticated. The question is obviously who did it? And the answer is we did it ourselves. There was a process where somehow for the biggest part of our history, when we were nomadic intergatherers, it was advantageous to be more friendly, to be more playful, to be more tame in a way. Yeah, as I said, that's pretty much the opposite of what you would expect. Now, sort of the dark side, you could, you could say, of that friendliness is indeed that we just want to be like. We just want to be part of a group. And we find it very hard to go against the status quo. And this is obviously what you see so many times in history, is that we commit the most horrible crimes in the name of loyalty and comradeship and friendship. So I'm not saying that the fact that people have evolved to be friendly is it means that we have evolved to be good. These are very different things. But it is very different from the idea that civilization is just a thin veneer and that we are fundamentally selfish. I think that's absolutely not the case. I'm quite persuaded by that argument. I think one of the things that people really have understated dog that didn't bark during this pandemic. I mean, a lot of people have died around the world. There's been terrible failure of collective action in the United States, particularly, but also in lots of European countries that haven't dealt with the pandemic that much better. But there's also a lot of things that could have gone very, very wrong that didn't. In March and April, again, people were saying, this is going to be all production chains are going to break down and, you know, you should stock up on food. And a lot of people, as I said, went out and bought guns. And you know, except for a week or two when everybody went crazy and bought a ludicrous amount of toilet paper, so there were sort of a few local shortages of toilet paper, all of the essentials of life have continued to be provided even through very complicated lockdowns, including, you know, water, electricity, internet, food, up to the luxury goods that you can still order at the press of a button. So I think it's not just civilization that has proven to have a sort of stronger durability than perhaps you might have expected. Actually, the capitalist system in this particular circumstances work much better than people anticipated in making sure that, you know, people are provided for and, you know, coupled with a relatively active welfare state in this year. Uh, interesting in the United States, it looks as if poverty has gone down in the last year because we've been given people welfare benefits that often exceed what they were earning. So I think sort of the strength of, you know, for all of the terrible suffering of this year, it has also shown the, the resilience of human civilization and of our political and economic system. I think that we've just become so incredibly rich and there's so much slack in the economic system, which means that, I mean, there are so many people doing jobs that don't need to be done at all. Writing reports no one's ever going to read, sending emails to people that they don't like, that when there's a crisis and everyone is feeling like, I want to contribute, you know, I want to do something useful. And suddenly it turns out that societies are much more resilient than we often think they are. This is why, by the way, I was skeptical when in the financial crisis, there were a lot of takes and opeds saying, oh, you know, 
global civilization was, you know, on the verge of total breakdown and then all of us would have gone hungry or something like that. I was very skeptical of that because I, <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of hot air in the system. Well, I guess we could debate about whether part of it is that so many of those jobs, which appear useless, which may or may not be useless, can now be done remotely, right? I mean, what's interesting is that all of the jobs that are essential, that require in-person presence, just continue to be done at you know, great personal risk and with a lot of bravery and so on. And a lot of those jobs, it turns out, you can do perfectly fine from you know your couch at home. It tells us that you don't have to go to the office to do those jobs. I'm not sure that it's actually been a test of what happens when those reports don't get written because people continue to write those reports from their couches. Yeah, You've made a very interesting argument for why we should be more optimistic about human nature. What are the political implications of that? How should that change about how we think about the political and economic world? I think the implications are very profound. You could argue that every political ideology starts with a view of human nature. There's obviously the famous debate between Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, where Thomas Hobbes on the one hand argued that people deep down are, well, mostly selfish and that therefore we need a leviathan and sort of an all-powerful political ruler, whether that's a, a dictator or whether that sovereignty lies in, I don't know, in parliament. But we need hierarchy. I think if you believe that people are inclined towards selfishness, then that is an argument for hierarchy. I have a disagreement with your interpretation of Hobbes, but I'll, I'll let it pass for now. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, I mean, go ahead, because uh, obviously I give a very simple and, and short well, it is important, I think. Hobbes' argument doesn't rely on saying that people are bad or mm -hmm. that human nature is bad or that we just sort of hate each other. It's a point that I think has a lot of contemporary evidence when you look at failed states, when you look at places that really don't have any political authority. And it's that, you know, when you don't have anybody who can enforce rules, there's a lot of mutual insecurity. So, you know, if I have my hat in my field over here, and you have your hat in your field over there, I will be acutely aware of the fact that you could come and kill me. And that doesn't mean that human nature is bad or that people actually want to kill each other, but it gives me a real incentive to go and get some kind of stick to be able to defend myself. Yeah. And I'm really skeptical of that view, yeah. But when you see my stick, you're not able to tell what my intentions are, because often defensive weapons are also offensive weapons. So you see your neighbor getting a stick and you think, well, I mean, it looks like he might be preparing to attack me. So perhaps I better strike in a sort of preemptive way. So I'm not saying that I agree with Hobbes, but I think the argument is not people are bad. And so life in the state of nature is nasty, brutish and short as a famous quote goes, because they just like killing each other. Mm -hmm. It's that people are fearful people have an insurance of some kind of Leviathan of some kind of state that can punish wrongdoing. You're rationally incentivized to take action that's going to prove a conflict. Yeah. And I'm highly skeptical of that view. So that's why in the book, I devote quite a bit of time with looking at the latest evidence we have from archaeology and anthropology. So indeed, Rousseau famously argued that in the state of, or sorry, Hobbes famously argued that in the state of nature, there was a war of all against all going on, whatever that means. Um, maybe it's sort of, uh, it was actually bloody, or maybe it was just people <laughs> ending up in fights or maybe it was just Twitter or something like that. But anyway, that was one of the reasons why we needed a Leviathan. So I think it's interesting if you actually look at the archaeological evidence we have, there's pretty much no evidence for war 
before the moment that humans became sedentary. This is, by the way, where I have a big disagreement with people like Steven Pinker, who I think have cherry-picked the evidence to show that supposedly we were very, very violent in the past and that the rise of civilization basically made us more and more peaceful over the millennia. Well, take me through this, because my understanding from the evidence he presents is that actually when you look at the rate of homicide in prehistoric societies as best as we can reconstruct it, and I'm aware that there's sort of real limits on the data there, it turns out that it was on power for worse than the most violent places on Earth today. Yeah. So there are a couple of sadly lesser known anthropologies, such as Douglas Fry, who've, I think, convincingly argued that you have to look at the right groups of nomadic hunter-gatherers. So we're pretty sure that for the biggest part of our history, we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, which is a quite specific type of society. Now, what Pinker does is he looks at what they call complex hunter-gatherers who already had invented farming, so did a bit of farming on the side, or were already sedentary or partially sedentary, which are highly modern phenomena of the last 10 to 15,000 years, and therefore probably not representative of the way we live for the biggest part of our history. So that is what you see when you look at the anthropological track record. It turns out that actually nomadic hunter-gatherers are much more peaceful than these other groups of hunter-gatherers. I think even more important is to look at the archeological evidence. If it would really be the case that there was some kind of war of all against all going on back then, and that nomadic hunter-gatherers all around the globe are very violent, then you would suspect that some kind of cave painter from the past would have made a nice painting out of it, you know, some Guernica or something like that. And we have found hundreds or even thousands of, of cave paintings, but only after the moment we became sedentary, you see that they also depict these signs of group violence. So I see this tribal nature, I see it as something that is deep within us, but it has to be triggered by specific circumstances for it to become a real problem. And I think these circumstances are circumstances of something that we call civilization, when we become sedentary, when you have hierarchical systems, etc. Let's say that I'm convinced by this, and I honestly just don't know the evidence and those pieces of research enough to know sort of who to believe here, but you make a very plausible case. I guess I wonder how relevant it is, which is to say that if you could show that there was early civilizations that were sedentary in some kind of way, but bore some kind of resemblance to us, and they were incredibly peaceful and egalitarian, then I would say, all right, well, you know, perhaps we can get back to that. There'd still be a big question mark about that because we live in vastly more complicated societies and so on, but I sort of see the mix, right? If you're saying, look, there was a moment when there was these sort of roving bands of humans, and they really didn't have enough contact with the outgroup right? And they were in small enough units that they didn't really have conflict because they were basically these sort of extended family tribes of 20 to 30 people. And they would sort of roam around. They would, you know, rarely encounter other humans or wasn't that much direct competition for resources and so on. And they were really peaceful and wonderful. I mean, that warms my heart. You know, I'd love to watch a good movie about that. I'm happy to hear that for, you know, a hundred thousand years before the arrival of sedentary civilization, our human ancestors had nice lives, even for very short lives and, and so on, but you know, peaceful lives rather than violent lives. That's a wonderful piece of news. But the question we surely have to ask is, we live in a civilization, we have to sustain a civilization. And if from the first moments of a sedentary civilization that in any way sort of resembles what we have now, Pinker is right, and there was all of this violence. And then over time, we've learned to sort of 
regulate this and improve that. I guess to me, what happened before that doesn't seem all that relevant. So apart from the fact that it's super fascinating, I think it's also politically very relevant. Our theories of human nature tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies. So what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. If you start with a quite cynical view of human nature, then you'll quickly start building institutions, you know, schools, workplaces, democracies that bring out the more selfish tendencies. It's interesting, by the way, if you read the American founding fathers, they very much bought into the veneer theory of civilization. They very much believe that civilization is a very fragile thing and that people can quickly, you know, turn into monsters, or at least that people are just basically selfish. I think it was John Adams who once wrote an essay with the title, all men would be tyrants if they could. And that's clearly what they kept in mind when they um, designed the constitutions and, and the Bill of Rights and blah, blah, blah. You can build very different kind of institutions once you have a more hopeful view of human nature. I think one of the example of that is deliberative democracy, participatory democracy, which is clearly grounded in a more hopeful and I'd say constructive view of what citizens can do. That actually, if you put people around a table and you know, if they're left-wing or right-wing, rich, poor, young, old, you let them discuss really controversial, difficult issues, they quite often come up with reasonable compromises and actually often have debates that are much better than the kind of debates that you see in Parliament. And same goes for many other ideas that I'm excited about, whether it's universal basic income or, you know, a different kind of schooling system. You start to believe in very different kind of things. And um, I think that once you take that seriously and, and build your institutions around them, you actually can create different people as well. Um, obviously, I don't believe you can engineer human nature or anything like that, but ideas are never merely ideas, you know? They can become self-fulfilling prophecies. So we could keep talking about these really <laughs> yeah. interesting, you know, highly theoretical questions for a long while. I'm interested in a lot of the literature on deliberative democracy. Some of it I found convincing, some of it less so. But I guess I don't know, I find it implausible that, you know, the hopes we should or shouldn't put in del deliberative democracy should turn on what exactly the lives of hunter-gatherers 30,000 years ago were. Especially if it turns out that you know, the story is those lives are super, super peaceful 30,000 years ago, but the moment that they got a field uh, and started tilling it, then they started killing each other at high rates. Because then I said, well, okay, I mean, but probably our society is not very similar to either of those, but if anything, it's more similar to the society that had fields that people tilled and they felt like they have property to defend and all of the things that come with that. So, yeah. Well, look, it's so fascinating if you study the anthropology of some of these nomadic and together societies that I think you can really draw political lessons out of them that are still so relevant today. So one example is that humbleness is an absolute political requisite if you want to be a leader among nomadic hunter-gatherers. Imagine Donald Trump in prehistory. Well, he wouldn't have survived for long. People wouldn't have liked him. He would have been cast out of the group and he would have died alone because you needed friends to survive in the Ice Age. Otherwise, you would be very hungry very soon. These are what anthropologists call reverse dominance hierarchies. So not classic pyramids, but actually a pyramid, you know, turned around or, or on top of its head, uh, where it's the group that basically controls the leaders, which very much reminds me, by the way, of Scandinavian countries. So you might have heard of the law of Jante, or what in the Netherlands we call it hayfield culture, where there's a real dislike 
of people who think too much of themselves. So I think that in many well-functioning social democracies, success is a little bit of a crime. Now, <laughs> you can be very critical of that and say, well, that's terrible and uh, you know, then people can't really excel. But I think it's actually the secret ingredient of a healthy democracy where people are always very skeptical because the simple fact is that power corrupts. Power is an incredibly dangerous drug and you always need to find ways to keep those in power in control. Now you sound like the founding fathers. Isn't this what Adams was saying? Yeah, I mean, there are other ways to do that with obviously the separation of power, etc., etc. I mean, my basic view on human nature is that most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's, by the way, I think an anarchist view of human nature. Most anarchists would phrase it the same way, is that most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. Now, the big problem with anarchists, though, is that they're not really good at building institutions. <laughs> and I think institutions are all that matter. I promise this is the last uh, <laughs> point I'll make about that. But again, I agree with you that perhaps it's true that Donald Trump would have fared very poorly in a hunter-gatherer society and wouldn't have had any friends. I don't think he has true friendships. I don't think he has friendships if you take a normative ideal of what a friendship is. But he clearly has a lot of people who are pretty friendly towards him. And he has you know, another 70 million people who just voted for him. So that, that seems, again, to be a reason for, for the disanalogy rather than an analogy with the past. Clearly to understand contemporary politics, we have to understand how it is that somebody like Trump can have so many quote-unquote friends. But I'm interested in some of the sort of specific ways in which you would change the world. You know, you're saying institutions is all that matters and that's sort of where the anarchists go wrong. What do our institutions get right and what do our institutions get wrong and how would you change them? Small little question. Hmm. So the first part of my book is really about the shift in science. And then in the second half of the book, I try to apply the theory. And that's where it gets much more difficult. But it also maybe gets more interesting. So when it comes to schooling, what would it look like if you have a more hopeful view of human nature? Or you look at these nomadic and together societies. Well, you would rely much more on intrinsic motivation instead of extrinsic motivation. You would say that, well, maybe kids don't need to be forced to learn this or learn that. You don't need a very hierarchical boarding school kind of system, but actually you can give children the freedom to follow their own curiosity and develop their own interests. And so um, I've studied some schools who go really far in this, you know, they've abolished homework, for example, they basically have no teachers anymore. It's more like coaches who guide these students on their own learning course. They mix everything. So all the ages are mixed. Uh, people from all different kind of levels are mixed. And um, turns out it works. You know, some of these schools have been operating for decades with pretty good results. Although it's the question how you measure <laughs> the quality of these kind of schools, because the way we currently measure quality of education is designed for a very specific kind of education, for what we call the knowledge economy. And I'm very skeptical about all of that. To be honest, most of the people that I find really interesting and that I've learned most from in my life had a very disastrous career in school. And something similar is what you can do in the workplace. So um, if you believe that your employees don't have to be, I don't know, forced to do your job or be lured with money or something like that, uh, but there's something called intrinsic motivation, then maybe you can build a much more egalitarian kind of workplace. I study one really successful healthcare company in the Netherlands, it's called Neighborhood Care, where they have uh, now 15,000 employees and zero managers, and all these nurses work in self-directed teams. And um, the results here are pretty amazing. Uh, so they deliver higher quality healthcare at a cheaper cost. 
yeah, what's really important here is what expectations can do. So if you if you basically expect more of people and think, you know what, I think you've got great ideas and very curious to see what you'll come up with. And here are the means to do so. Well, let's go. Yeah, you can go quite far with that. It's a relatively simple idea. That's, by the way, also behind universal basic income, which is also all about trust. You don't have to apply for benefits and fill in a hundred forms that prove over and over again that you're sick enough, depressed enough, and really a hopeless case that will never get anything done in your life. No, here's a bit of venture capital. Here's some money that you can, maybe you can move to a new job or start a new company or basically follow your own curiosity. And sure, there will be quite a few people who will waste that money, maybe on drugs, maybe on alcohol, but the vast majority of people will do something that is interesting and will be of benefit to society. So let's talk about each of these ideas for a moment. There's a lot in there. So on the question of education, you know, I certainly was incredibly bored in the school I went to and found it to involve a lot of, not exactly rote learning, but, you know, it was very unimaginative. It was, uh, I mean, I think it's striking, for example, that I went to, you know, various German state schools. I moved around a lot as a kid. You know, at, at no point really, but I remember, did a teacher come up to me and say, hey, you seem like you're interested in ideas. You know, why don't you read this interesting book or anything like that? So I'm all for changing schools radically. I guess I wonder whether some of the schools that try this sort of thing work in part because they have quite a privileged clientele, right? So I, I don't know about the details of these schools, but I would imagine that uh, they are probably in nice neighborhoods of affluent cities with parents who probably make more than the average, most of them who themselves have quite a lot of education. And so that's an environment in which something like that probably works more easily than when you have parents who perhaps don't value education as much in part because they haven't seen in their own lives how education can pay off and can bring them something, who probably do less outside of a classroom to model virtues of studying hard or of pursuing your intellectual interests and so on, just because they don't have the time for that, because they are, you know, working long hours at a crappy job. Now you might say, hey, well, if you're making all of these changes at the same time, then and all of that will already have changed. But I think there's a real question of how to get from A to B. So I guess, look, like I'm not surprised that there might be a school in a fancy neighborhood in Amsterdam or in Stockholm or in New York where this kind of model works, where you also have the most talented teachers who are most devoted to this, you know, in the same way in which I'm quite skeptical about a lot of the sort of experimental evidence of aid going to a particular village and they do a particular thing. It turns out that when you try to replicate that, that often doesn't work. I wonder whether something similar might be true of some of these schools. That sounds great. I mean, if I lived in one of those neighborhoods, I would consider sending my kids that I don't have to that school. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm skeptical about whether it would be easy to replicate that across a whole society. I think that's a great point. You know, I kept this in mind when I selected my case studies. So the school that I studied extensively in the Netherlands is actually from the south in Roermond, very, very far away from Amsterdam. If you can be far away from anything in the Netherlands, I mean, it's a very small country. Um, but as you may know, we have a public schooling system. We don't really have private schooling in the Netherlands. So this is really a school for people of all incomes. So there are rich kids and poor kids all together there, which is, I think, exactly what you want in education. One of the oldest theories that we have best evidence for from psychology after the Second World War is contact theory. 
So the best way to combat prejudice, hatred and racism is just contact. You need diversity. Once people actually meet different people, you know, it becomes much more difficult to hate. It doesn't always work. And, you know, there are a lot of nuances here in the in the literature. We've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies into contact theory. And most of them give us this optimistic message that indeed contact is the way to go. But yeah, then what, what do you see? You see a, an incredible amount of segregation in the past couple of decades. We select people from a very early age. You're the smart ones. You're the not so smart ones. You're the rich ones. You're the not very rich ones. You're the white ones. You're the black ones, etc., etc. So the solution here is both very simple and very difficult, it seems. Now, I wanted to say one last thing because I see myself both as a radical utopian thinker and as a boring technocrat. So I think that as a writer, you shouldn't be afraid of utopia, of thinking about where you want to go. I think that for a very long time, the problem with the left actually was that it didn't really know what it was for. People on the left were mainly knew what they were against, against racism, against homophobia, against austerity, against the establishment, against everything. There was even a book published with that title by a major New York intellectual, you know, against everything. And yes, <laughs> I'm against all those things as well. But please, let us talk about what we're actually for. Let's change the subject. <laughs> Let's, you know. And then how do we get there? Well, you, you get there by experimenting incrementally. And if something doesn't work, change your mind. Try something new. Go back to the, you know, the drawing board and, and come up with something different. But I think you can be those things at the same time. And I think that attitude has become more common. I see it more among economists, where now the current generation of economists is much more empirically minded, but also more progressive. And I think more ambitious, basically, when they talk about things like taxes, for example. So yeah, you can combine the, both of these attitudes. I strongly agree with that. The thing you're talking about, I was thinking about posting it on Twitter a few weeks ago, um, there's an old German political cartoon of a sort of penguin or something at a protest, and the sign simply says "dagegen" against, <laughs> and it does <laughs> it, it, it does sum up a lot of sort of political attitude, a sensibility about politics, right? And I find it so frustrating because I find it to be quite lazy. It's lazy for two reasons. The first is that it's not asking the hard questions of how actually to improve things. It's always easy to be against something to find something that you're bothered by and say, this is bad, without actually doing the hard work of, of thinking about how it could be better. And of course, it's motivated, I think, often by a certain self-righteousness. Point at something and say, that's bad, and I know it's bad, and look at how wonderful I am for having noticed how bad it is. You know, often I think policymakers face this really difficult set of choices, right, where they have option set A, which involves, uh, you know, good thing X and bad thing Y. And then they have option set B, which involves good thing K and bad thing L. And, you know, they try to weigh those two courses of action and probably with a lot of dissatisfaction, they end up saying A is better because, you know, X is really important and Y is pretty shitty, but it's not as bad as, you know, the other bad thing that would happen. And then you have a bunch of, you know, academics and activists and so on coming in and say, Y is really bad. How could you do something that'll lead to Y? And uh, you know, I think that serves an important role because we want to be aware that why is bad. We want to not be glib about the fact that hard choices often have bad consequences and so on. But perhaps for activists, that's perfectly fine. I think for, for academics and intellectuals, you know, you should be a little bit more curious about the overall 
structure of the option set and thinking through how you can actually improve. Yeah, 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 just yeah, saying, yeah. oh, how yeah. stupid you are, you did something yeah. that led to why, yeah. doesn't actually do that. Yeah, or maybe in general, we just need to acknowledge that there are different roles to play in any movement. So very often we tend to end up in these debates where people say, well, this is the right form of activism. And no, this is the right form of activism. And, you know, uh, then and academics complain about, you know, more popular writers who are, they're simplifying things. That's not the right way to, to say this or say that. And then the popular writers say, well, the academics, well, we can't read their work. You know, it's unreadable. While actually we need the real specialists, you know. You know, what maybe a sentence in my book could be a four-year PhD for someone else, right? And I can't write my books without these brilliant specialists. But I think I also have a role to play. And the same is true for all kinds of movements. So you need people who are willing to be beaten up by the riot police. I'm not that kind of person. I don't have enough courage for that, I think, I'm afraid. But that doesn't mean that that's enough. You also need policy wonks who, when there is political pressure, when there are a lot of people in the streets and angry about something, who can come up with a good policy idea. Or you need people who are just really smart Machiavellians, who at the right time understand that this is the time to get something through Parliament. You need all of that. Maybe I'm curious to hear what you think about that. My feeling is that people on the right are often better at understanding that and that people on the left just love hating each other <laughs> and saying, well, you're, it's more of the narcissism of minor differences. Yeah, and I mean, if you go back to the life of Brian, there's the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front that sort of fight each other, right? I think that there is a lot of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and sort yeah. of mutual hatred on the left. And I think that there's an argument to be made that it really is more intense on the left, and that's that a lot of left-wing politics is about righteousness, right? It's about justice and righteousness. And a lot of right-wing politics is about defending the team and defending what's holy, right? And I think it's easier when you see yourself as, hey, we're just, we're just defending the team against all these bad influences out there in the world. It's sort of easier to say, okay, we have some disagreements, but look, like we're on the same team and like we're going to defend each other. Yeah, I think yeah, it sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. lends itself to that more easily. There's one essay that had a big impact on me by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark. I think she wrote it in 2003 or 2004. And there's a sentence very early in that book where she says that there's a certain kind of activism that cares more about being right than actually winning, right? That you'd rather go down in a righteous way than actually <laughs> being in power and changing the world. And I think I'm very fed up with that attitude. I care more about winning and about actually, <laughs> I don't know making a difference. What about improving the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, one piece of skepticism I just want to note about this idea is something that I got from David French, who's been on this podcast before, you know, very thoughtful and principled evangelical Christian who's been incredibly brave and standing up to Trump and so on. And, you know, he used to write an organization called FIRE, which defends intellectual freedom against threats from both sides. So, you know, he came from a conservative movement and the conservatives that he sort of knew had this narrative that, you know, the left is incredibly effective in the United States. It has control of all the institutions. It has all the money, you know, it like completely dominates the university. They know what they're doing and they're eating our lunch every day of the week. And then he started through fire to hang out with a lot more left-wing people and ACLU types, et cetera, et cetera. And he was astounded that they had exactly the inverse narrative. They thought, my God, you know, these conservatives, they have all these well-funded networks and, you know, they have Fox News and the Republicans always hang together, you know, and like, they know what they're doing, we don't. So it may be that we're exaggerating 
the extent to which there's a unity. Yeah, or they're both right. So I would say that culturally the left is incredibly dominant, or at least progressive. I w maybe the left is not the right term. Culturally, I mean, progressive dominate Hollywood and Netflix and you name it. But sort of politically, especially American democracy is, uh, I don't know, uh, here in the Netherlands, we have what I like to see as an actual democracy where you get 2% of the votes and you get 2% of the seats. You know, it's completely proportional. And maybe especially from that European perspective, you look at the US and I mean, it really, it genuinely doesn't look like a democracy to me. It looks like some kind of weird elective aristocracy with dynasties. I mean, dynasties themselves are very weird phenomena where you have the Bushes and the Clintons. I mean, the, the whole idea that the daughter of our current, I mean, he doesn't even have children, but if he wouldn't ha would have children, that he or she would go on and become the next, I don't know, political leader. That sounds very weird from a Dutch perspective, which I think is entirely logical if you have an actual democracy. But if you don't have an actual democracy, but something different, then all, the, all these things start to make sense. I think by the way, I always say this and people never buy this argument, but I'm going mm. to say it anyway. Mm. Uh, but that was one of the underrated reasons why Hillary Clinton struggled in 2016. It, but, but actually, there is an anti-dynastic sentiment in the United States too, even though there is a weird tendency towards political dynasties. And but the biggest problem in electoral politics, you can sort of be whoever you want to be, but your narrative about yourself has to match people's perception of you. And I think there was a real problem where, you know, a lot of the 2016 campaign was about shattering the glass ceiling and women empowerment and so on. And I think if the candidate had been Elizabeth Warren, that might have fit her life story. But for Hillary Clinton is a very impressive person and personally, I think, would have made a fine president. She's a former first lady. And everybody knew that though she might have been able to make her own way if she hadn't married Bill Clinton and run for elected office herself. Perfectly imaginable. She's clearly a very talented person. The actual reason why she was the candidate is in good part that she's the wife of a former president. And so that chasm between the self-presentation and the perception, I think, was one of the problems of that campaign. I want to get back to talking about some sort of big ideas that you put forward. Let me just pick up on one strand of a conversation about contact theory. So the way that I read the, the literature and the evidence on contact theory is that it is very inspiring because when you are exposed to people who you might have had a negative opinion about, who might have been prejudiced against, your opinion usually improves of them. But it is also quite clear through the hundreds and thousands of studies, I and mean, this is probably the most developed research paradigm in social psychology over the last 50 or 60 years, that there are some quite strict conditions on it. One of them is that this only works if you are in a position of equality. So being students together in a classroom would be a great way of doing that, right? But another important point is that there should be a bigger identity that unites you. So this works very well when you're on a sports team together and you say, hey, we have all these differences that you know, normally might put us at odds, but we're both really wanting this team to win and we have to cooperate. And, and that might then create opportunities to address those differences and, and overcome them. But the literature seems to suggest that when you put the difference of identity up top from the very beginning, when actually the encounter is structured around you and A and I'm a B and we're going to talk, that doesn't work nearly as well. So I guess I'm wondering how you read the evidence on contact theory and what it should mean for how to build, you know, diverse democracies. Mm -hmm. Well, look, it's become very, very fashionable 
I think especially after Brexit and the election of Trump, to emphasize just how tribal human beings are. For example, a lot of people have been talking about the Robert Scathe experiment. I think it's in Ezra Klein's book. I think it's in Jonathan Haidt's book. You know, this experiment in the 50s where you had two groups of young boys going to a camp and the first week they were just allowed to become friends. And the second week, these groups were brought into contact and very quickly they started behaving in a pretty nasty way. We all know about the Stanford prison experiment, which is maybe not exactly about the tribal nature of people, but it's about how, uh, again, how thin the veneer of civilization is and how quickly people can behave in a really nasty way. So um, two groups of students, one becomes the prisoners, the other the guards, you put them in a fake prison. And after a couple of days, they started to behave in really horrible ways. Why I'm quite skeptical of all of that is that I think the argument has been overplayed a little bit or quite a bit actually the archives in many of these classic experiments have opened up so there's a psychologist called gina perry who's looked at the robert's cave experiment and the milgram experiment you know the with the shark machine um there's a french sociologist called thibault le texier who's done a very good book in french sadly <laughs> uh, but it's a terrific uh, look into the stanford prison experiment and then again and again what they found is well in the case of the stanford prison experiment we now know it's basically a hoax. These students were specifically instructed to behave as nasty as possible. Many of them said that they didn't really want to do that. And then Zimbardo, the researcher, the psychologist, who's become one of the most famous psychologists in the world still today, he said, well, you need to do this because uh, I want to go to the press with these results. And we need these results so that we can convince people that we need to reform the whole prison system in the United States. I mean, it's, it's really, it's genuinely shocking to read what has come out of the archives. Well, what were the reforms that he wanted to implement? I know this is a complete side note. Yeah, but, yeah. Um... No, but the, the historical irony of this is really incredible, Yasha. On the one hand, you have Philip Zimbardo, and on the other hand, you had Martinson, who was a criminologist. I mean, a lot of people back then, they basically wanted to abolish prisons. They thought that prisons were inherently bad. And so they wanted to get rid of them. And the great tragedy is that these people started to argue that rehabilitation doesn't work. So the Martinson report was a very influential report in the 70s, it was also very shoddy science, but became very influential where they argued you know it really doesn't work it's it's no point to try and rehabilitate people that's all you waste your money on that and the hope among left-wing people was that people would conclude well we can just abolish this whole stupid system because anyway it doesn't work obviously something very different happened so basically the argument was like there are people who say let's improve yeah. prisons to make sure they're humane places and then let's work on rehabilitation yeah. so that once people are out of yeah. the prisons they can go back to decent lives. And then those people yeah, are like, no, exactly. no, that's still evil. Prisons are evil. So we need to show that even if it was like these nice, enlightened, uh, bright Stanford students in a prison type environment, they would all be so cruel to each other. So clearly prisons are always going to be terrible places. And once we go to press with that, everybody's going to say, let's abolish prisons. And then the world will be much better. But that's fascinating. And exactly the opposite happened because this argument, is, and especially the Martinson report, was used by conservatives in the US to say, well, you know what, people, you can't reform them. They're hopeless anyway. Let's just lock them up and throw away the key. So this was, I think, the groundwork that was laid for mass incarceration was, in a way, was laid by left-wing intellectuals. I mean, it's, a, it's a very depressing 
history and very frustrating. Now later, Martinson came back and said, sorry, sorry, you know, I made a big mistake. That was the worst research I ever did. And in the end, he killed himself, maybe partly out of this regret. He's a very tragical figure in criminology. Because now we actually know that people can actually be reformed. And if you have humane prisons, these can be incredibly effective. If you look at the Norwegian prison system, for example, they've got the lowest recidivism rate in the world, lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And how do you do it? Well, you just treat them in a humane way. You give them the freedom to socialize with the guards, make music. They've got their own music studio. They've got their own music label, <laughs> which is called Criminal Records. Yeah, it's, it's highly counterintuitive, and it takes real courage to build a criminal justice system like that, but it works. Now, how did we end up here? <laughs> well, what I find interesting is that even in the States, there's bad imputation of some of the data, right? So I'm trying to remember the exact misinterpretation, but there's a sort of stat that the share of prisoners who are readmitted to prison is really, really high, but it doesn't distinguish adequately between how often mm -hmm. are prisoners readmitted to prison? And it's true that, um, you know, for every prisoner, they're going to be readmitted to prison mm -hmm. a high number of times in the future. But that's because a minority of them will continue to yeah. perpetrate crime after crime after crime. Mm -hmm. A majority of prisoners who are released from prison in the United States never return to prison. And so those two figures are confounded in a way that I think is, yeah, yeah, is, that's a good point. is, is quite problematic. So I think this whole argument that human beings are fundamentally tribal has, has been overplayed. Obviously, what you see in the US is this huge, how do you say that in English, sortition, is that identities have come to overlap, rural and I don't know, certain states and Christian and conservative and Republican, et cetera, et cetera. And there's not enough of a mix there anymore. In the language of politics, there's a lack of overlapping cleavages, right? It used to be the case that in the 50s, you're a Democrat and you're liberal, but you're also a Methodist. And so in your church, you hang out with lots of Republicans or whatever. And, and that doesn't happen anymore. But that is the result of a very long and complicated historical process. And what I don't buy is the idea that people are fundamentally tribal, that if you just send a couple of kids to school camp, that they very quickly end up in these groups that start fighting each other. What we actually know from the, these experiments, and the story about the Robbers Cave experiment is incredible. I mean, what Gina Perry shows in the book is that actually this experiment that has become so famous in social science and psychology, it was actually not the first, but it was the second experiment they did. And the first time they tried it, it didn't work because the kids became friends and they didn't want to start fighting. And so the researchers tried to set them up against each other, but it didn't work. They had to abandon the experiment because at one point the boys realized they were being manipulated. And uh, actually it ended up with, <laughs> with the researchers fighting among themselves and uh, ending up in a fist fight. So <laughs> yeah, very much the opposite. So yeah, obviously we are very groupish, but I think it's been overplayed. We also have a great capacity to actually connect with people who are different from ourselves. And I think in a very real way, we've evolved to do that. Where, for example, we're one of the only species, this is a fact I love and that, that, I, that I learned from evolutionary biology, we're the only species with white around our irises, right? So we can track each other gazes. All the other primates, the chimpanzees, the bonobos, you name it, they've got dark around their eyes. So they're a little bit like poker players wearing shades. These are the real Machiavellians, but we just have to give our gazes away. And the same is true for blushing, by the way. I know we can't really imagine many of our political leaders blushing, which is, you know, worrying and maybe a sign of that we have survival of the shameless in politics. But blushing is a pretty unique human phenomenon. Some parrots probably do it as well. 
we're not really sure. There's some debate on that. But apart from that, among mammals, we're the only ones that blush. I mean, if you think about it, blushing is totally fascinating. Involuntarily, we give away our feelings to someone else, which is a great way, obviously, to establish trust. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't think of blushing as a trust mechanism. It's hard to hate someone who, who blushes. I guess it makes them vulnerable. And I guess it also is mm -hmm. a cue that they might be lying, right? That like, if you know that mm -hmm. uh, your friend blushes every time they lie, you have confidence to know when they're telling the truth. So it turns out that humans are really bad yeah. at telling when, when yeah. other people are lying. For perhaps it may be more true of strangers than it is of people you know, but it's actually very, very hard to tell when strangers are lying to you. Studies have shown that very, very interestingly. So look, I'm going to lay my cards on the table here in my self-interest, which is that, you know, I'm writing a book about how to make multi-ethnic democracies work. And I'm an optimist on that thing as well. I think people on both the right and the left in different ways are far too pessimistic about the prospects of building fair, thriving multi-ethnic democracies. But I can hear the voice of a skeptic saying, well, look at all of the racial injustice and look at all of the problems, look at all of the mutual antagonism, look at the failure of integration in some European societies and so on. So if we draw on this optimistic view of human nature, you know, write the last chapter of my book for me. What does that mean about how to build those societies? So the big problem with my book, obviously, is that even though people have evolved to be friendly, I think, the big problem is that obviously progress doesn't start with friendly people. It often starts with people who are willing to go against the status quo, who are willing to dissent and say crazy or radical things that may actually become, you know, masters of civilization in the future. I think it's interesting that someone like Greta Thunberg, for example, who's been so effective, whatever you think about her, I mean, politically, she's been incredibly effective, obviously. And uh, I think it's a telling fact that she sees her asparagus as her own superpower that she doesn't suffer from this thing we all suffer from, is that we just want to be liked. We just find it so hard to not be part of a group and not be liked by our friends. One of the things that I uh, have become frustrated by or that make me really uncomfortable after I published my book in English, I had some success with my previous book, Utopia Freelist, and then you enter this whole world of people who all know each other and do all kinds of things that to me seem very immoral, you know, give talks for 40 or $50,000 for 10 minutes of talk, something like that. You know, the same as my mother earns in a year as a special needs teacher. And um, I meet these people and turns out they're actually quite nice. So I went to Davos, for example, in 2019, and people think, well, here's the global elite involved in some kind of conspiracy, but you meet them and they're wonderful. <laughs> they're very nice and friendly. And maybe that's exactly the problem. That is so terrifying, is that they're really friendly and at the same time they have totally corrupt business models and evade their, most of their taxes. So if you live in a relatively stable social democracy, like, I don't know, Sweden right now or Norway, then you don't need to be more than decent. You know, if the institutions are fine and the incentives are fine, then society doesn't ask much of you. But if it's true that we are moving into an era where our democracies are more fragile and our climate is breaking down and you name it, then maybe that asks more of us. And also as individuals, I've become a little bit frustrated with so many people on the left who always, when the subject of the individual comes up, they want to talk about structures. And they're like, you know, we don't want to talk about individual responsibility. That's neoliberalism. And then I read the works of people like, I'm, I'm currently reading the biography of Havel, you know, the great 
Eastern European dissident. And it's all about individual responsibility. It's all about the courage to be different and go against the status quo and the loneliness of that and the price you have to pay. Just how difficult are we willing to make life for ourselves? And not have this inclination to always talk about, yeah, but what about those other people? Yeah, but what about the structures? What about the banks? What about the taxes? What about neoliberalism, etc.? Yes, 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 that's all important. But how willing are we to make life more difficult for ourselves? What sacrifices are we willing to make? That's a question that I'm, that I'm asking myself more and more these days. Yeah, I think the push and pull of agreeableness is very interesting, right? I mean, we need agreeableness, as you're saying, to build civilization. And actually, you know, friendliness is, you know, close to agreeableness. So to a large extent, what's special about human beings is that we are capable of sustaining cooperation in those ways. But then you also need the courage to stand against the prevailing wisdoms of your society if we're going to make progress. And that includes, by the way, making sort of progress in deeply divided society disagreeing with your own tribe, right? Yeah. And maybe that's sort of the point, is that in any just society, you always need to be a little bit uncomfortable. If you're like, <laughs> if you're comfortable, then probably something is wrong. I'm now reading a biography. It's a really unique, well, it's actually a diary, more like a diary, by um, someone of the Dutch resistance during the Second World War. And he did this really unusual and dangerous thing, actually, of keeping a diary. And he was a very problematic man. His name was Arnold Dowers, and he was absolutely not agreeable. He, was, he ended up in fights with everyone all the time before the war started. Then the war started, and it was sort of as if he found his life's goal. So he was involved in the rescue of more than 300 Jews. And <laughs> his tactics were <laughs> pretty amazing. He basically bullied and shamed people into accepting Jews, you know, to hide in their houses. And he would go to the the houses of Orthodox Christians and start quoting from, I don't know, Matthew's this, mm. or, you know, from the Bible and say, are you a real Christian or you're so fake, blah, blah, blah. And then he bullied them into accepting these refugees. Then the war ended and his life was a total disaster again. You know, he moved to South Africa, had to moved there and nine times his marriage was a disaster he and again he ended up with in fights with everyone he was absolutely not agreeable and that to me there seems to be a deeper message that th this guy who did the most wonderful thing who was in a 100 good guy a 100 moral being in the worst of circumstances he was a disaster during most of his life now i'm not saying we all need to be like him but sometimes yeah make life a little bit more difficult for yourself and for others and certainly we should judge people by the most important things they've done in their lives, not by, you know, the random worst thing they've done in their lives. This is a different topic, but I'm a believer in moral luck. So, you know, there's an interesting philosophical question of whether your moral status should ever depend on things that are in some way beyond your control. I mean, if we both get some drinks and we each decide to drive home in our cars and I hit an innocent child and you don't, do we have the same moral status? I mean, in a way we should, because we made the same irresponsible decision and it was just, you know, blind luck that the girl ran out in front of my car, but not in front of yours. But I think if I said that, said, well, look, I killed a kid and you didn't, but hey, we both had a drink and drove home. I think that's a little bit too simple. And that's true of sort of historical circumstances as well. I think there's lots of somewhat unthinking, agreeable, young, patriotic people who signed up to serve in World War II. And some of them ended up being part of the Luftwaffe and others turned out to be 
part of a royal air force, which, you know, as Winston Churchill says, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few. That makes a difference, right? It might be dumb luck. I mean, that person transformed into the other society may have been part of terrible injustice rather than terrible justice. But as it happens, they were part of something deeply just rather than deeply unjust. And we can't just wave that away. Hmm. Oh, I love that point. Yeah. That's a really good point. To be honest, I don't believe in free will at all. So I've stopped believing in free will since I was 16. So, <laughs> yeah. Is that, and the whole notion of, of wealth creation, for example, is that people say, well, I created this wealth and therefore I deserve this and that. Well, if you zoom out a little bit, then you quickly realize that pretty much all wealth is the result of our collective culture that we build over thousands of generations. And it's very hard to say, well, you know, I deserve this or I deserve that. Because individually, people are completely incompetent. They understand almost nothing about anything in their lives. And uh, they just end up in lucky positions where they can claim a bigger piece of the pie, you know, where they're better able at rent seeking or whatever. So I want to distinguish between two different things here. The first is that there's a difference, as some like John Rawls would put it, between desert and legitimate expectations, right? I don't think that anybody deserves anything because property is a human invention. And I think we should set up the institution of property in the way that it benefits the most people. And so to say, hey, I deserve this because I made this wonderful invention. Well, what you deserve depends on how we set up our institutions. And that depends on a set of moral questions, right? I do think that there are reasons for us to set up incentives in society and that once we've set up incentives in a particular way, you might have a legitimate expectation to keep some portion of the fruits of, mm -hmm. of your efforts, mm -hmm. right? If you yeah. if we tell you, hey, if you train as a highly specialized surgeon, you're you know legitimately going to be able to expect a certain kind of salary. You can't just go in and just like take all of that money away. But it doesn't mean that surgeons should earn a million dollars a year, but there are some legitimate expectations we can set. On the question of free will, I think a lot of the question about free will is a red herring. You know, I don't believe there's a free will in the sense that you're like completely self-creating what you're doing in each moment or something like that. But I think if you take seriously what it would mean to dispense with any notion of free will, it would lead to a society that we're not willing to live in, which is to say, you know, I have friends because I think they act nicely towards me and others in the world. And when they suddenly do something terrible, I might stop being friends with them, or at least I will reprimand them for it. Mm -hmm. I will say, what did you do? And if you get rid of any kind of notion of free will, if you say, well, we're just determined and there's no praise or blame and you know, we're all just machines mm -hmm. that are driven by mm -hmm. whatever, I think it destroys the possibility of friendship and love and comradeship and so on in the world. And so I think it's important to defend a version of it. A good friend of mine is writing a book right now about and he goes very far in discarding the whole notion, but then it comes back again and again. It's a little bit like a zombie. It's just part of the human experience. You can't fully get rid of it. It's a famous joke that like, you know, you've had a long seminar in which you've definitively proved that free will doesn't exist. And then one philosopher turns to the other and says, so where should we go for dinner? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. R Robert Sapolsky has done a lot of great work on this. He always gives the example of, I think this was... Um, the beginning of this century somewhere in the US where there was a man who um, developed some really disturbing tendencies, you know, started to watch child porn and that kind of stuff. And so he was taken in and he was sentenced 
And then after a while, they found a tumor was growing in his brain. And so he was treated for that. The tumor was removed. And all of those terrible feelings he had were gone. And so he was released after a while from prison and he rehabilitated really well. And then after a while, he started to behave in exactly the same way again. That's what they discovered. And they put him in a brain scanner and the tumor had returned. And the point here is that Obviously, well, this is a very clear example where it's, you know, one clear cause. Now, most of the bad behavior of people obviously doesn't have one clear cause. It has many causes, sociological, cultural, you know, immediate, neurological, you name it. But there's no fundamental philosophical distinction between any criminal and that man, I think. It's maybe quite simple in this case and more complicated in other cases, but there's no fundamental distinction here. So yes, I am very skeptical of the whole notion of punishment. And I know that's counterintuitive, but a lot of things that we call civilization are counterintuitive. So I don't know, having a society without very high child mortality rates, that was once counterintuitive, but luckily we have it now in most parts of the world. So. It seems to me a naturalistic fallacy to say that something sounds weird, but it could be still the, the right way of thinking about it. Well, I think it's less about whether it sounds weird than it is about whether we need those notions to make human society work in a way that's beneficial to everybody. Now, I don't think we need the death penalty for that, or I don't, need, I don't think we need sort of terribly cruel forms of punishment, but I think it's impossible to apply that standard in your own life, right? It's impossible to say, I'm going to be friends with anybody in the world, whether they're a wonderful person or whether they're, you know, a terribly cruel person. Now, I think it's true that a lot of people, you know, some of the worst people I know generally suffer from it. They don't choose to be assholes. They're assholes for reasons that are beyond their control. It, it's not going to make me be their friend. No, 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 exactly. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think the point here is that you can't advocate punishment for punishment's sake. So there's nothing inherently good in punishment or in vengeance or whatever. You can make an empirical argument that some form of punishment is a good price to pay because it makes life better for most people. But yeah, then I often like to look at the empirical cases where societies have moved very far in the other direction, such as Norway, which what they're doing there is it's so... It's very hard to understand for most people from other countries. The way they responded to the Breivik attacks, for example, and say, you know what? The prime minister said, we're going to respond with more openness, more transparency, and more democracy. We're not going to have some kind of war on terror or something like that. And um, yeah, Breivik lives in, you know, compared to the circumstances he would have lived in many other countries, it's relatively comfortable for him. So that is possible. Now, obviously, I mean, Norway is incredibly rich and small country, et cetera, et cetera. But that is what we should strive for, I think. This has turned to a much more philosophical discussion than anticipated, which I've enjoyed, actually. But let me ask you this sort of political question about the future at the end, which is that a few moments ago, you said that sometimes you need to be willing to challenge people, but also perhaps to sacrifice for social progress. I guess my question is, do you think at the collective level, a more just future would involve a lot of sacrifice or not. I think, again, there's this vision, and it brings us back to the first question perhaps I asked, there's this vision where to deal with climate change, we need to be a lot poorer and we need to not have any economic growth and we need to give up on a lot of things and you can't go and fly to have a nice holiday on the beach and you can't you know, do all of those things. But then there's another vision that's saying, actually, you know, we might be able to deal with things like climate change while continuing to 
be as affluent as we are now and make many parts of the world more affluent. So I guess, which side of the debate do you fall on? Do you think that living in a better world would involve a lot of sacrifice material or otherwise for a lot of people? Or do you think that there's a way that is less zero-sum? I uh, recently wrote an essay about mobilization during the Second World War because that has become such a popular comparison and metaphor for what we need to do right now. Uh, people talk about the Green New Deal, but they also talk about the way the US mobilized during the Second World War. And that is given as an example by progressives of how quickly societies can change. And suddenly, you know, back then we built an impressive amount of tanks and and grenades and planes and you name it. And you could really argue that the Second World War was won in the factories and not on the battlefield. And then the, the point here is that we should do something similar right now with climate change and just build a massive amount of solar panels and windmills and you name it, electrify everything. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go look into that because there's a lot of rhetorical optimism around that. Let's just do that, mobilize. And it turns out that mobilization is actually, <laughs> it's not a very nice thing to do, or it's not a very happy period. So back then, what they had to do is crack down on a lot of civil liberties, for example, crack down on the freedom of expression, nationalize companies who didn't comply with the rules that were set by the government. Back then, there was a guy, I forgot his name, but he was sort of the Jeff Bezos of his time. He was dragged out of his office by the military police because he didn't comply with the government regulations and because he didn't produce enough for the military. So mobilization is not some kind of happy clappy thing. Obviously, you can come up with a lot of propaganda that says, ask not what you get from your government, but what you can give, right? Blah, blah, blah. Sure. But to be honest, it's uh, it's the big tension or maybe the whole problem with the political project that I've been working on for the past couple of years. I believe in radical change, but I believe in patience as well. It just takes time. You know, it takes decades to really transform a society and to supplant one ideology with another. And I do believe we're at the end of the era that we call the neoliberal era, but it just takes time. And we don't have time. And if you just look at the technological challenge, you can say, well, we need to halve emissions in 2030 and move to zero emissions in 2050. Well, that's just such a massive transformation of the whole global economy that you need there. I think that many people on the left and many progressives, they underestimate just how much needs to be done. They sometimes talk about, well, we just can move to 100% um, electricity in uh, in 20 years. And I'm like, do you know that only 20% of our energy demand is electricity? And what's your solution for steel? And what's your solution for cement? And what's your solution for planes? You know, many of the technologies, there aren't even there yet. And the countries where there's more political will, for, I mean, the Netherlands obviously, obviously has a much more sane debate, I think, around climate change than the US has. And even here, it is so difficult. I mean, we're moving and it's historically, I mean, it's moving quickly. It is really impressive to see the change that we've achieved from just in debate, from where we are now to compared to five or 10 years ago. But the science is just so unforgiving. It's so, the timeline is so, so yeah, that's, uh, that's worrying. And on that positive note, <laughs> this is supposed to be an optimistic conversation. No, it's to be honest, I find that really terrifying and it keeps me up at night, is that I'm very hopeful about the direction in which history mo is moving. You know, I'm genuinely hopeful about a younger generation that is more ethnically diverse, more progressive, better educated, you name it. I'm hopeful about 
newspapers like the Financial Times, in April, they published an editorial that said, we need to reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years and think about a more ambitious role for the government and higher taxes on the rich. I'm hopeful about all of that, but I'm worried that it's not going to be fast enough. Richard Brechmann, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.